Podcast. The Book of Romans has been called the King of the New Testament Epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Alrighty, I welcome you back to your seats and I do hope that you are ready for some very good news here in Romans chapter four. That helps people actually. That sound was, please be seated and fasten your seatbelts. Return to the cabin. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer as we often do. Father God, now we pray that the Holy Spirit who we worshiped and sang to and sang about this morning would be working in our hearts to give to quiet our spirits and to give us your peace and to open us up to what you have for us. Lord, you have truth today for all of us and you have ordered our footsteps and there's nobody here by chance or by accident but under the sovereignty of God it was this message for these people at this moment for a reason so help us to grasp that hear it understand it put it into practice and be blessed in Christ's name amen well let's say December rolls around and you're at the company Christmas party once again and the boss announces that this year they're going to be gifts in envelopes and so you're all excited about that the eggnog is gone the chicken dinner is finished and you've already finished a few rounds of jingle bells it's time to hand out the envelope so of course, like a, a good boy, you wait until you get in the car to open it up, as we usually do. And what to your, to your wondering eyes should appear but your regular paycheck that you've been paid all year. I try to make it rhyme, but no more, no less. Same hours, same deductions, same amount. It's your paycheck in there. And he said, gift. Merry Christmas. Here's your well-earned wages. <laughs> what? You know, you know, wait a second here. You scratch your head. You kind of roll your eyes. You take a closer look. And, of course, you'd be thinking, how ridiculous is that? Everyone knows the difference between earning something as wages and receiving something as a free gift. Right? Do you? 
No, you don't. And that is why for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, the Bible has to say, you can't earn it, you can't earn it, you can't earn it. It's free, it's free, it's free, it's free. It's so free, I'm going to write the whole New Testament about it. And still we're like, I'll be working my way back to you, Lord. <laughs> now, I, <laughs> I did not do that for first service. I just want you to know how honored you are. It just came upon me. Well, you know, Paul is going to ask the question, do you really? Do you? He's asking the question because you better, because your eternal destiny hangs in the balance of whether you can figure out, am I relating to God according to my goodness and my own deeds, or have I renounced all of that and just begged for a free gift of mercy? Therein lies the difference between heaven and hell. And Romans chapter 4 is all about that. And just saying Romans chapter 4 is a relief, isn't it? <laughs> Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 are all about the bad news to help us understand our need of a savior. And you can't appreciate the good news without understanding your bad news that you truly need a savior. So uh, somebody just said to me recently, I, was say, I mentioned to them and sharing the gospel and I said to them, uh, I got saved when I was 19. And he goes, saved? Saved from what? Why, why, why does God need to be saved? Well, that was a nice open door there. <laughs> To explain to him, not only from what I was saved, but what he can and must be saved from, that hangs over every head of every sinner who is guilty before God and must be judged. That's the point of Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. To convince us in love. God's not a big meanie. He, he's backing the entire human race into a corner in love so that they might look up for an emergency exit because if we can't be good enough, if he says there's not one person on the planet that's good, no, not one. Whether you're a blatant sinner whether you're a pretty decent guy, comparatively speaking, whether you're a religious do-gooder, without a relationship with God, without the grace of God, without the saving intervention of what Christ did on your behalf, you are lost, hopeless, and helpless. That was done in love because our God and our Savior, in love, wants no one to perish but for everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so the bad news is born not out of God's arrogance or sternness, but out of God's love to say, hey, listen, there's only one way to be saved. And the, the point was to convince you, if the bar from which we've fallen under and short is moral perfection, and we have been disqualified from eternal life and reconciliation with God because we can't be good enough, then everybody should deduce in their own hearts and minds that if we're going to get right with God, it has to be apart from behavior. 
there has to be another way. So Romans 3 finished up by saying, but now God introduces this new good news that he says you can be right with me and it has nothing to do with behavior at all. It has everything to do with your trusting, your faith and receiving, not about your good deeds, but about Christ's good work for you on the cross. And so there you have in a nutshell, uh, if you missed Romans 1 through 3, that's pretty much what where it took us. It took us to the, to the foot of the cross, looking up at a Savior who came into the world to be the, the penalty, to pay that price, to shed his blood, to free us of our sins. But so it sounds like pretty good news, but not everybody was buying it. And so now we're getting ready to jump into our text here in uh, Romans chapter four. Not everybody's buying the good news, especially Paul's Jewish audience. And uh, because they prided themselves on being pretty good religious people. <laughs> Why would we have to get saved? We're born saved. We're born in relationship with God. God gave us the Ten Commandments, and he did on Mount Sinai there. And we love them, and we quote them. And, and this is all true, they put them on their doorposts. It's called the mezuzah. They put them on their foreheads. The Pharisees all had one scripture on their forehead. And they put it on their hands. They loved it. They talked about it. They memorized it. They sang songs about it. They claimed it as their own. There was only one problem. They couldn't keep it. They kept breaking it. So Paul has to say the commandments, my dear Jewish friends, are not your friends. They're your accusers. Thou shalt not lie was given to show you that you lie. Therefore, you're in trouble. Therefore, you need a savior. The commandments came to point us to put, take our hand and introduce us to the hand of, of someone who could be good enough, who someone who paid the debt that we owed. That was the job of the commands. And so here in chapter four, the Jews still are, you know, dragging their heels. So here's a genius move on the part of the Holy Spirit through Paul. He says, go to the founding father, the first Jew, father Abraham, the first Hebrew, he, he, he's square number one with the Jewish race, and they love him. He's a hero. He's the most famous Jew of all, right? Now, if he was reconciled to God through faith and not works, Trump card, because then every other Jew who follows in the footsteps of Father Abraham is not justified by being a good person and keeping the commands, because get this, the commandments didn't come for 500 years after Abraham. Moses isn't even born yet for five centuries. So the genius move on God's part is to say, bring up their, look, they're saying we love the commands. The commands are ours. We don't need conversion. We've got the law. We've got the law. So the Lord, the Holy Spirit says to Paul, bring up their hero and ask the hero, how did you get right with God? And here's what he says. Abraham was, humanly speaking, our Jewish father, our, the founder of the Jewish nation. And what did he discover about being made right with God? 
Now, if his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, and he had plenty of them, he would have been, he would have had something to boast about, you know, like with other guys, but not before God. For the scriptures tell us, there we go, word of God says in Genesis chapter 15, 16, about our father, Abraham, Abraham believed God and God counted him as right with God because of his faith. It says it right there in the Old Testament. Verse four. Now to the one who works, Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, and here's the too good to be true part that makes it hard for people. To the one who does not a thing, who doesn't work at all, doesn't even try to be good, but trusts God who justifies, acquits the wicked, the sinner, the ungodly. Their faith the one who doesn't work, doesn't try to keep the commandments at first. He approaches God not on the basis of, uh, look what I've done, but look what Christ has done for me. Their faith is counted as getting right with God. That's what righteousness means. Verse 6, now he's not done quoting Abraham. Now he's going to say, didn't King David say the same thing in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2? when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits rightness with him apart from keeping commandments, apart from being good, apart from works. He wrote there in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So that's our text in its entirety for our consideration. Um, I want to introduce this term to you, this great doctrine called justification by faith. It's not a word we use a lot, justification. I mean, it's the process by which God acquits the guilty and calls the guilty not guilty, legally and justly. He declares them Righteous, right with himself. That's the process. It's called justification by faith. Salvation by grace, really. So um, the judge is the one who paid the penalty. So he's both the judge and the payment. And so he is the one uh, doing the justifying of a uh, guilty person. Now, he offers a pardon, pardon since he died for the sins of the world. He says, I'm going to be gracious and merciful to whomsoever I please. That's a quote. And he can do so because he died technically for everybody's sins. So they're just and they're paid for. They're finished. So now he says, here's the arrangement. I'm going to make a way for humans to get right with me and it'll be, it'll be just for the asking. A change of heart, repentance means turn around. Turn around from your ways and come to me and let me give you a gift. Everything for nothing. Just by simple surrender and trust. That's how I'm going to do it. Since you can't be good enough, 
I'll be good for you. I'll pay your way in, and then I'll offer you the free gift. And then the choice will be earn your own way, pay your own paycheck, have your own paycheck, which the wages of sin is death. So either collect your wages or let me pay your wages and give you a free gift, give you a free pass, which is it? And it sounds so easy, like (laughs) that's a no-brainer, but uh, sadly... It isn't. So getting right with God, Old Testament, New Testament, depends on receiving favor through simple faith. Our verses this morning, that's what Abraham discovers, point one, note takers. That's what Paul preaches. And that is what David took delight in. So let's go for it here. Let's break it down. What did Abraham discover? Verses one through three. Now, what did Abraham discover? And something that everyone needs to discover if they're going to wind up in heaven. It's something that Paul hopes you'll discover too regarding our sinfulness and how we need to get right with a holy God. How does that work? Now, notice with me that it says, what did our father Abraham discover? That's interesting to me. It was a process. I mean, he, he might have thought in his early days that, like most people, live with integrity, be a decent guy, law-abiding citizen, do no harm, be a good person. And at the end, God will pull out some kind of scale and go, hmm, more good than bad. You're basically a good guy. Come on in. Nothing could be further than, a, than the truth. And then had he thought that, he had to discover something else, that it's not through human effort that God will ever justify anybody, but through his own work on the cross to whosoever believes. That's God's way. And so he's going to reach at the top shelf, as I already said, to the greatest Jew, the first Jew. And, and he's going, I mean, it's so clever. It's kind of like if you were making a political point and you wanted to cite uh, George Washington, that would be smart. Because who's going to argue with that? Well, don't answer that question. <laughs> There's always somebody, right? But then you could say something like, well, Abraham Lincoln, right? And to make your point. And that's, that's pretty powerful. Or if you were making a theological point among evangelicals, and you said, well, even, did you know Billy Graham said this? He wrote this? Look at this. Here's what he's doing. He's doing the same thing. He's going to the Jews, and he's saying, how did Abraham wind up being friends with God, because that's what God calls Abraham. When he refers to Abraham in the scriptures in Isaiah, he says, you are my people, descendants of Abraham, comma, my friend. Wow. How did he do that? By being a really good guy or by surrendering to him, crying out to him, just trusting him, taking him at his word. God threw a lot of promises at Abraham, and he believed him. But amazingly, he's going to take one of those promises and call it out and say, this is the promise that, that shows you the kind of faith Abraham had that saved him. And it's very similar to how we get saved and become Christians. It's taking God at his word and having simple faith. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, whosoever simply believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That 
is an amazing thing. So yeah, you know, verse two, hypothetical that he quickly shoots down. He says, I guess if good, good deeds counted for anything, uh, he says he would have something to boast about, uh, maybe with his uh, friends there in the desert, you know? Uh, like guys like to boast, humans like to boast about net worth, awards, degrees, physical strength, how good they are, uh, and all of that, okay, all their accomplishments. And he said, so maybe that would count for something among humans, but not before God, because we're stained, we're flawed. And so what Abraham will have to discover is, is that though he's got some good deeds, they, don't, they, don't, they aren't always carried out. And though he's, he's got some courage, it doesn't always prevail. And he's got a problem. He's got some problems. Um, you know, uh, he's got some problems lying. Remember in Genesis uh, chapter, what was it? Chapter 22, uh, where he went down to uh, Egypt and the Pharaoh says to Abraham, man, she's gorgeous. And he thinks, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me to get to my wife. So he says, yeah, uh, she's my um, sister. <laughs> she's my sister. Yeah, go ahead, take her for your harem. Go ahead and take them. No, spare my life. Don't beat me up, you know, because she's just, treat me nice because that's my sister. What? Right? So he knows, okay, I've got a little problem there. I don't always... <laughs> <laughs> and so did his wife there. <laughs> because of his little problems, she had the larger problem as a consequence. And so I don't always tell the truth. I don't always do the right thing. So he had to discover that what put him right and acceptable, that made God love him, was nothing in his own behavior or his own good accomplishments because he was stained like the next guy, right? So... Uh, he has to be put right with God in, a, in another way. So he goes on to say, so humanly speaking, biologically, uh, he is the progenitor of the Jewish people. So God has a plan, right? He's had the plan the whole time. And he says, here's, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to grab a guy and a wife who can't have children, and I'm going to deal with them, and I'm going to make from them a nation. And from that nation, I myself... I'm going to step through a human womb who's related to Abraham. And I am going to become the God-man. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God in every way. But that's his plan. And he told uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he has a sevenfold promise, a buckshot of seven promises. But the promise that gets pulled out for our attention that in effect saved him when he said amen to is very interesting. And here it is in its context. After this, so the this is when Abraham rescued his kind of numbskull uh, nephew, Lot. Uh, Lot was always in trouble a lot. <laughs> and, and, and so he rescues him, and Abraham's afraid. He, he, he's a courageous warrior. Uh, he defeats four or five kings, a coalition of kings, and he's afraid they're coming back. So here's the after that, 
the word of the Lord comes to Abram. He's first called Abram, then he changes his name to Abraham. Abram in a vision, do not be afraid, Abram. They're not coming back. And by the way, I'm your shield and your very great reward. And the word can mean inheritance. So that's got Abraham thinking. Well, that's got me thinking, sovereign Lord. What can you give me as an inheritance since I don't have any children? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus, a slave born in the tent that he adopted is going to be his heir. And Abraham said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household is going to be my heir, speaking of inheritance, Lord. Then the word of the Lord comes to him, verse 4. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now, his wife has never had kids, and she's in way past the age now, and so is he. And by the way, his name was, God does this to us, his name was Abram, which means exalted father. So that was hard enough. You know, what's your name? Abram. Oh, exalted father. How many kids you got? None. You know. <laughs> and then before Isaac is born, a few chapters later, he says, hey, by the way, I'm changing your name to Abraham. From now on, it's Abraham to all the way out, which means father of a multitude. So now he has to tell everybody at the well, hey, stop calling me Abraham. Okay, what do you want to be called? Abraham. And they go, father of a multitude? Yeah. How many kids you got again? None. <laughs> but I'm going to have a lot of descendants. As many as the stars in the sky, and they'll all be biologically related to me because God said it, and I believe it. And a little bell went, bing, he's in, he's in. So, so interesting. You can go back to our verses. So interesting that he would pull of the many promises because he's already believed God. God told him when he lived in Iraq, as an idol worshiper, hey, listen to me. I'm God, not the rock there. I want you to follow me. I'm not going to give you all the directions. This isn't MapQuest. I, 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 I'm just, that was way funnier than you have given me credit for. <laughs> MapQuest. Uh, you follow me, I'll tell you, like, turn right, turn left. When I feel like it, you just start walking. And he started walking. So, so there was some believing. But God says, the, the promise that will help you understand salvation is this one. Why? Hmm. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, By the way, when God said to Abraham, it is through your offspring that I'm going to bless the world. Paul's saying, interpreting this verse, he says, by the way, it's singular. And he meant by your seed, by your son, singular, by a son born biologically to you in the future, I will rescue, bless the world. So how much Abraham fully knew? Who knows? But here's what Abraham fully knew. God is telling a childless, a guy who doesn't have children, in the future, somebody's coming related to you who's going to save the world. 
And Abraham believed in the promise of a savior to come. And that's what put him right with God. See, so it's closer to Christian salvation than you realized. Amen? So Abraham is saved looking forward in faith to somebody who said is coming. We get saved looking backward in faith to one God already provided who's related to Abraham. If you open up Matthew chapter 1, you see Abraham's name because from Abraham you chased down all of the sons and he had a son and he had a son and he had a son and it goes on for, I don't know, it's about 70 times. And then you see Jesus being born of a virgin Jewish woman related to Abraham, but of the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. That is why our Savior is called the God-man. He is the God-man. And he came through just as, as he said he would. And so that is why the promise is pulled out here. We are looking back in faith at the cross that saves us, and we believed it. We believed the message. Hey, 2,000 years ago, this God-man laid down his life for your sins, man, and something burned in our hearts, and something opened up, and the Holy Spirit was softening us and opened our hearts to believe, and we did, and in came this new life, and Jesus called it being born again. And so that's what Abraham discovered, and now it's what Paul preaches. Let's take a look at that. Paul makes a conclusion now. Now to the one, now, now Paul's going to say, okay, can we talk here? Because uh, we, the Bible itself, and, and I like to point this out, he asks the question, well, what does the scripture say? So whenever you've got a problem and there's an argument, like, oh, is it this way or is it that way? He says, what does the Old Testament say? What does the scripture say? Most Christians today, they've thrown out the whole Old Testament anyway. Or they've, they've uh, watered down the, the errancy of the scriptures as an actual guide, a compass for truth. So you can no longer even say, well, what does the Bible say? They say, well, you know. But he says, what does the Bible say? And he points to Genesis 15, 6, because it's scripture. So he says, in light of that, the Bible itself says Abraham didn't work his way. He believed. In light of that, he says, can we talk? Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift. You don't open the gift and, and find your paycheck. But as an obligation, he owes you that money. However, to the one who doesn't work, but trust God who justifies guilty people, their simple faith, just come into him. I'm going to change your heart like I've been saying. That's what saves the person. So he says, and genius move of the Holy Spirit again. He says, we've heard what the greatest Jew on the planet thinks. Now let's hear what the greatest Christian on the planet thinks because arguably he is the greatest missionary, evangelist, pastor, church founder, apostle. He wrote through the power of the Holy Spirit 13 New Testament books authored by the apostle Paul, of course, by the Holy Spirit through that man. He planted 20 New Testament churches and almost single-handedly evangelized the entire Roman Empire. 
At the end of his ministry, which he traveled 10,000 miles, at the end of his ministry, he says, there's no more places left for me to preach. (laughs) So the Holy Spirit's saying, what does that guy think about how how to get right with God? What does he say? Maybe you could trust a man like that who Jesus Christ appeared to on on the Damascus road. Can you take his word for it? I think we can. So here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying that wages are given to someone who works, but if you have faith, God will credit your account with the treasures of heaven's goodness of Christ's goodness will be poured into or counted into your account. So we're going to talk about that word that you're looking at, uh, credited there in verse 4. It appears nine times in chapter 4. It's important. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. Credited, 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 credited all in a few lines. It's an important word. In Greek, it's called logizomai, where we get the word logarithm. It's an accounting. It's a bookkeeping term. It's one of those Excel spreadsheet kind of things, moving this ledger ledger over to this side. Uh, And in our case, it means to deposit funds into a depleted account. That's what it means there, credited. That by faith, not your good actions, not your good thoughts, not your good intentions, not your promises to do better. By nothing but surrender of saying, I can't. I've sinned. I'm a mess. But I trust you. By that, God credits you into his wealth into your account. Let me put it to you this way. I was flicking around watching TV and the prophet came on. Uh, what's his name? Marcus Lamonis. He's a Lebanese man who uh, is almost a billionaire. He's got $900 million and he likes to go into failing companies and here's what he does. He'll go to a candy shop that's just bleeding, just hemorrhaging financially. They've got liens against them. They've got lawsuits. They can't make payroll. I don't know if you've ever watched an episode. I mean, it's a mess. They're fighting, and it's all their fault. It's just they're drowning. They're inches from bankruptcy, and some of them have already filed for it. And he comes in, he sees something he likes, and he wants to invest in it, and he has to take an interest in it, see, turn it around. So he writes a check. He writes a check, and you watch him write the check for $2.3 million, and he hands it to him. And he says, here you go. This will cover bankroll bring you up here, the liens, they'll suspend the liens off, they'll they'll take all the fees and all the interest and all the troubles and all of that. It's just your account goes from zero to all the way up to 2.3 million for what? For nothing. Well, he's going to get a say in the company, of course, which also sounds familiar and works for our analogy. (laughs) He always likes to say, after he hands him the check, he says, who's in 100% charge now? Right? And they go all together. 
you are, <laughs> you know, because they're holding the check. Well, yeah, somebody else deposits, logismize. This is what he does. Uh, one theologian put it this way. The scripture is saying that in the same way, funds are deposited into a depleted bank account and become the possession of the owner of the account. God's moral perfection is fully credited to the believer's standing with him. The, more, the, 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 the bankrupt person goes from owing God to having all full sufficiency, from falling short to measuring up, from legally guilty to legally pardoned. And on top of that, I might add, not only does he excuse us, then he raises us to new life. And he changes us. The change is going to take a lifetime to work out because we're going to become a different person. We are a different person, but it won't be fully realized till we see him face to face. But the account, the deposit for that has been poured in, not because you deserved it, but because you could never deserve it. And you could only beg for it. I told you about the guy who told me. He says, so you think I'm going to just come and just beg for, like, I got to beg. I got to get down on my knees and beg God. You know, I'm a pretty decent guy. Let me tell you about some of the things I've done. He said, because you're making it sound like I have to come the same way a common criminal has to come to heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the same way. Or as a prostitute or a murderer. I could go on. We all come the same way. We all cost the same. And every face you see in heaven is a charity case. Every single one of them. And then everybody will be pointing, not to boast about our own works. We'll be boasting about what he did on our behalf. That's why all praise and all glory and all honor and all power belongs to him. For from him and to him and through him and for him are all things. Romans chapter 11. Amen? Amen. Are you getting happy? I'm getting happy. I'm getting really happy. And I'm getting hungry, too. <laughs> kind of. I am aware of that. So. So, Paul. <laughs> who are you? <laughs> Tim Delaney. Unbelievable. Ushers. <laughs> Clean up on aisle three. All right, Tim. I love you, man. No hamburgers for you. All right. Hey, uh, Paul's going to say, okay, I want to ask you guys a question. How does heaven dump into your nasty account Christ's riches of moral perfection, Christ's wisdom, Christ's goodness, Christ's love. How do you get into your spiritual bank account God's treasure of perfect gold standard morality? 
Why do you do that? By trusting. By saying amen. By saying nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Let me give you, and Jesus gave a great example of two approaches to God. All right? Let's take a look at that. Jesus speaking, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, oh, he's a religious guy, knows the Bible. And another, a infamous tax collector. They were really bad dudes back then, and that's why they got branded as the quintessential bad guy. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other losers robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that bozo in the corner, that tax collector. I, I'm working my way to you. I fast twice a week. Are you kidding me? And I give you a tenth of all I get to the penny. But the tax collector who was working for the IRS... I threw that in there for you. I knew it was getting late and you were hungry and you needed some good entertainment. Stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He was so humble and broken and like I got into just a mess. All I've ever done is ripped everybody off. And the person who has done nothing but ripped people off and lied and defrauded everybody. He's about to be the hero in the story and get everything for nothing. And he's going to be a co-heir with Christ. He's going to reign and rule on a throne in the new kingdom to come. That's the dude who's slippery and greedy, a kind of guy you would not want to be around. But he's had a change of heart. That's what metanoeo means, the Greek. Repentance. He's had a change of heart. What a loser. Maybe his mom came and said, what kind of son are you? I didn't raise you this way. And God just did something and he changed his heart. He went to the temple. And he goes, he can't even look at God. Have mercy. Give me a gift. I don't deserve it. I'm just a mess. He gets it. Everything for nothing. So Jesus says, I tell you that that sinner, rather than the religious dude, he went home justified. My professor at seminary used to say, here's an easy way to remember what justification means. Just as if I never sinned. It means to acquit, to pardon, totally. So he says, the sinner, the loser in the story, the guy everybody hated, everybody was looking down and looking at him in the corner, the guy who admits, I am a loser. (laughs) They should hate me. Jesus says, he's going home an heir to eternal life because I'm going to legismize. I'm going to pour in my righteousness into his account. Why? For free. Why? Because I love him. Why? I died for him. And he needs help. And he's asking. So I'm giving it to him. You've got a problem with that? Well, yes, I do. (laughs) 
I have fasted twice a week. I have given. I'm the number one giver in this church and account for nothing with you. Instead, you're going to give the riches of heaven to this loser. And God says, it's my money. I'll do with my money anything I want to do with my money. And it's not going to, to you until you understand you need it. That guy's gone home justified before God because everybody's all about them. Look at me, God. Look at what I did for you. We'll be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's finish up with David. Because this kind of thing brings joy. So I can see how he could be thinking of David now and the joy of being forgiven for absolutely doing nothing but bad things and then asking God to uh, forgive you. So this is a good one. You guys, this is a twist. Get ready to be surprised why it's here and really encouraged. Isn't David saying the same thing that we're saved by grace? Justification by faith, when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits, freely gives, reckons right with him apart from being good. And here's the verses of his song. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never use against him. Those are beautiful words. So... um, I'll tell you why he's delighted. That's the third point. What David, the greatest king, delighted in. He's delighted in justification uh, by faith. He's writing about it in in the hymnal. He wrote half of the Psalms. This is one of them. Uh, He's delighted in free grace and salvation because he needs it. He depends upon it. So here's what he's saying. Yeah, Abraham had a whole list of good deeds, and we can understand, oh, Abraham, yeah, he does. If anybody deserved to be saved, it's Abraham, you know? But then when you got David, as soon as you say the word David, sorry, but we do remember that he had a year that, uh, you know, the Bible talks about in terrible ways with Bathsheba and her husband. So he's going to say, how does it work to be saved by faith before he was justified by faith before that happened? He was a man after God's own heart before he walked with God before. And then he slid into a year of heinous sinning. How does that work with your justification? Well, he's going to sing amazing Grace in Psalm 32 about the joys of forgiveness, even though. So what he's going to get at here is, is that when God saves a person, your account can never be dinged. Your right standing that you get when you truly trust God, your right standing, all I'm talking about, your relationship with God cannot be altered or moved even by horrendous sinning. And that's why this is in here. Now, we'll round out those thoughts for all of you who are going, but, 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 you know, yeah, I'll help you with that. So 
Here's what he says. Blessed, the name, uh, the word blessed is Markarios. And Makarios ruled Cyprus, and they used to call Cyprus Makarios, just for short. And it, it, it took on the word happy, or pleasurable, or relief, or wonder, or peace, or comfort, or joy, because Cyprus was such a little garden paradise of an island. And so that's what the word means. And he says, blessed, fortunate, happy, and relieved are those whose uh, transgressions are forgiven. The word forgiven there means to be untied from something, unshackled by something. And then he says, how happy are we that our sins, our transgressions, that word means lawlessness in regard to God's law. He says, hey, don't lie. And we're like, I'm going to lie because I feel like it. Well, I'm commanding you, thou shalt not lie. Who cares what you think? I'm going to do it right now. That's called a lawlessness, and it's called a transgression. But he says, happy are you, relieved are you, comforted are you, blessed are you. When that kind of blatant lawlessness in your face, God, lawlessness, can be loosed from you, taken away from you, not tied to you. The second thing there, he says, Blessed and happy are you when your sins are covered. The word there for sins is different, and that means to miss the bullseye, to fall short. So when you slip up, do the wrong thing, and, 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 and various degrees of wrong things there, uh, how happy you are that your biggest messes are covered. And the word covered there means concealed from sight. In other words, that God determines to take your sins, as it says in Isaiah, to take your sins and my sins and put them behind his back where he cannot see them. And he says, I will forget your sins and remember them no more. Now, when God wills himself to forget something, it's forgotten. And that's what the idea is. He says, how blessed are we that we have the biggest mess, that's what the word means, just a mess. We missed the point, we fell short, embarrassing, humiliating, lots of people heard all kinds of things. That thing is out of God's sight. He does not, he chooses not to see it because he uncovered it at the cross and he paid for it at the cross. So Christ was stripped so that we could be covered. Do you see? And the last thing he gives thanks for, blessedness, because the Lord will not count your sins against you. And here's the kicker. It's the word logizomai again. So here's what he's saying about logizomai that we didn't know. The full idea, justification by faith. One, credits to us what we don't deserve and cancels and keeps from us what we do deserve. You see, there are two sides of it. He pours in the riches and he cancels out any claim against those riches. That's a pretty amazing thing. Now, let's, put, let's say this. When somebody who has that account that is, you cannot ding it, you cannot change it, you can never alter your standing with God because you didn't, deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't qualify. So you can't be unqualified. Now, when, when a believer who's truly a believer falls into the, these kinds of messes, A, there's tremendous rebuke. There's a terrible shame. There's terrible pain. 
the New Testament says, hey, you know, you may be saved by grace, and you are, but anyone who sows to the sinful nature will reap a terrible destruction because God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. And David, he can sing amazing grace, but there are worldly manifestations and consequences. His family fell apart. His ministry was never the same. Israel was never the same. He passed on some problems to Solomon as well. Nathan, the prophet, came at him like a mad dog and exposed him for the sinful thing that he did. And God said, I am displeased with David. So it's not this cheap grace, but my professor told me this, one of them in seminary. If you preach grace correctly, it will sound as if people can take advantage of it because they can. You can, but a regenerated heart doesn't see it that way. The world and sinful hearts here Oh, well, then, if my account can never be dinged, I'm not going to try so hard. Oh, the Bible says that's not a sign of something good. The Holy Spirit puts in your heart this knowledge that God has received you and given you everything for nothing. You are humbled. You feel obligated. You want to keep his commandments. You're in love with him. You don't want to grieve somebody who would do something like that for you. And plus, you, you don't want to ruin your life. And you don't want to hurt the people around you or discredit the name of Christ. There are those and more reasons why we would never want to take advantage of it. But once he pours that, those funds into your account, there is nothing a devil in hell can do. There's nothing even you can do about it. Well, you say, well, I know people who have just walked away and they, they say they don't even believe in God anymore. Guess what the Bible says? then they never were a part of us. They just thought they were and said they were and maybe acted the part. But the reason, and John the Apostle speaking, the reason they left us is because they never really were with us. You see? But once the Christ infuses himself into your soul, the Bible says he unites his own spirit with our spirits and raises us up from the dead with him. There's no getting out of that. There's nothing you can do about it except yield and enjoy and rest and love him back and get that load of a good to do this, a good to do this. Yes, working, striving, sacrificing, Effort, they, it matters. There's rewards. There's forfeitures of rewards in the life to come based on our faithfulness. But as far as your standing with God and your eternal life, those are untouchable because it's a gift. It's not has anything to do with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great love. Now as we sing about your grace, excite our hearts, Lord, in this reminder of this beautiful thing called grace. We give you the praise and the glory and the honor in Christ's name. Amen. 
You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.